The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. There's so much suffering in the world. Just every day there's things that happen, of course, and there are other days where it becomes more obvious to us this truth that suffering is a part of our lives. The deaths of people over the weekend at the synagogue has really touched my heart and the um, the suffering there not only not only of the families and the people who died and the community in Pittsburgh and then the broader communities uh, touched by that but also the suffering of the person who did such a thing because it really is only through suffering that that is possible that somebody would do such a thing and the Buddha this question of suffering was central in his mind when he began his, his exploration when he left home to Explore this possibility. This was his question. Is it possible for us to be free of suffering? And in his own discovery, he found that it is possible for us individually to free our hearts from that hatred, from the suffering. And then because we're kind of community creatures, my understanding is that that transformation internally and the process that we carry in our practice of exploring this transformation, exploring what it means to live with peace rather than anger and and hatred, greed and delusion. As we explore that, and committing to, it's not only an internal exploration, the, the, the Buddhist prescription for what ails us. Um, he defined the entirety of his understanding in one way. He defined it was through this teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And in a way, this can be looked at as a kind of a medical uh, kind of model. The first noble truth, this truth of suffering, we can see as kind of the, the description of our illness, of our societal, cultural illness, of, of the illness that we have as beings. There is suffering. And um, his encouragement for us was to understand that suffering. And in understanding that suffering, we see the uh, the second noble truth this um, maybe what we could call the um, the uh, the um, the cause of our illness or the source of our illness is what th- what um, is described in the second noble truth as a as a craving a kind of a, a neediness um, and that neediness is driven by our views of what will make us happy and those views then create actions in the world that ripple not just affect us but affect others and so this um, source of our suffering comes from each of us holding this kind of neediness that's not seen clearly this craving and then the, the Buddha, the prognosis for this illness, the Buddha discovered for himself and taught, it is possible for this illness to end, to be free from this. Each of us internally can become free of this craving. And the prescription that he offered is the Eightfold Path. 
It's got you know these eight components. I'll just name them right now and then just briefly discuss each one, just briefly touch on each one. Wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. We can think of these as tools that will help us to understand the suffering and let go of that craving. And I, I said that the... Um, this path is not just an internal path and that's expressed in the Eightfold Path through the connection, the relationship aspect in the um, you know, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. And so our, our views and our intentions help us to carry those views and intentions into our speech, into our action, into how we engage in the world. And so I see this as a fundamental part of how the practice works, that this transformation that we explore internally is carried into our relationships and has an effect, has an effect in the world. And so the work that we can each do on this path of practice is an internal kind of exploration to free our own hearts of this craving and this tightness, this constriction, often based in views of what will make me happy, what will make me safe. And as we free ourselves, over time, it's, a, it's not a kind of a, in my experience, it's a gradual wearing away of this, of this neediness that transforms us and transforms our relationships and then has the possibility to transform the world. And so I really want to focus today, I've been over the last number of weeks kind of exploring um, the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and um, before I went away uh, to teach the long retreat at IMS, I started, gave a little brief overview of the Eightfold Path. And I'd like to continue today by talking a little bit about the first aspect of the Eightfold Path, of right view. And this really feels um, really relevant today in particular around the events of the weekend. But first, just a little bit about, to kind of set the context, the Eightfold Path as a whole, being this prescription for happiness, a prescription for what is the direction, how can we find happiness in our lives. So these, these eight aspects, wise view is basically kind of a a different perspective, a a way, a different way of looking at our lives that kind of frames the whole of how we engage in our relationships. And I'll talk a little bit more about that view in a moment, but that view then, that view affects our intentions, affects what we intend to do in the world. And so that's the second aspect. If, we, if we're holding a view that's supportive of peace in our hearts, it will create intentions that help us to act from that motivation of, of peace. So that's right view and right intention. And those intentions then kind of carry into our actions, into our speech, into our engagement, with the world, wise speech, wise action, and into our livelihood, how we, how we live. And so this, these are the next three aspects of the Eightfold Path, that these intentions that are set from this kind of reframing of what's, a, what's a, a way to live our lives, how can we live our lives with peace, oriented towards peace, creating these intentions to engage in a different way, opening our hearts in relationship 
And also, these intentions support not only our kind of intentions to engage externally with skillfulness, but also how to engage internally, to, to begin to look inside for those habits and patterns that have been conditioned into us. Our views and our kind of motivations, the way that we habitually connect with the world, have been conditioned into us by our cultures, our families. And we need to explore that part too, internally. Not just our external relationships, but what's what's happening inside. So is there aversion and um, greed and delusion in our own hearts? And there is. We've all been conditioned with that just, be, just because we've been born into our, our cultures. It's just, that's just the nature of, of being human, that we have those. And, and the, the big part of this kind of view or orientation is that it's useful to look internally and expose those attitudes, see them, not so that we can hate ourselves for them, that would just be more hatred, but so there can be a, transform, a transformative process that happens. And the transformative process happens, the prescription for that is in this last aspect of the Eightfold Path, wise effort, the effort to look at our hearts, the effort to look at what is in there. Is there greed, aversion, delusion in there? And can it be seen? The effort towards cultivating non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, or, or generosity and love and wisdom. And so this is, this is wise effort, our intention to uh, look internally for this. So the, you know, the, the external aspect of the path, wise, wise uh, speech, wise action, wise livelihood, helps us to kind of have skillful relationships with others, Wise effort and wise mindfulness and wise concentration helps us to have a skillful relationship with ourselves. So the, uh, the effort to look and see what's in there. And the mindfulness supports that. Mindfulness helps us to hold these things without reactivity and creates the conditions for a transformation around them. It was so surprising to me the first time I really began to look at my own hatred and anger in my own heart. I, I was not at all clear on how simply being aware of it would be helpful in terms of weakening it. In fact, I thought just the opposite. I thought being aware of it would make it worse. But I hadn't had much success with anything else anybody had suggested, and I was willing to try this exploration of being mindful of my anger. And it was not long before I understood that yes, this does, this kind of aware of anger, aware of any reactivity, any kind of internal suffering, creates the conditions for our kind of, our system to tap into its deeper wisdom about how to transform that, how to let it go. And so the... um, Mindfulness, from this perspective of curiosity about suffering, what creates suffering, this wise view that we start with, mindfulness imbued with wise view, creates a transformative, we could say kind of um, container in which these internal um, aspects that lead us to suffer, lead us to engage unskillfully, in which they can transform. And then concentration-wise, concentration is kind of stabilizing that mindfulness so that it can be more present more of the time. That's just a very simple overview of the path. It, it, um, and I've spoken about it kind of as a, a series of things, one leading to the other in a way. But um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of the main scholar translators of the, of the Buddhist teachings, um, has proposed that the Eightfold Path can be more looked at as kind of su- 
supportive strands that weave together. He compared it to like the strands of a cable that intertwine to create strength in that cable. And that these aspects of, of the Eightfold Path are like that. We don't fully develop right view and then move on to right intention and then move on to right speech. We begin with a little bit of understanding about what it might mean to turn towards these reactivities. And that creates a little bit of wise intention that helps us to engage in a different way. And so it's, it's kind of a very cyclical or spiral-like nature to how we engage with, with the Eightfold Path. I want to speak for a moment about the, the framing of the path factors. We sometimes call them the path factors. I've framed them as wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. In the Pali, the word is, the word for what I'm translating is wise, is more, is, it's sama. Um, and it means more like right. And yet the word right in our language often has some kind of loaded nature to it. So I want to take a minute to, to frame what this might mean. Right view, right intention. So in the context of what this path is doing, so it's like, you know, this, the, the analogy of the path so we're taking a path, we're exploring getting somewhere. And the, the aim is towards a heart that is freed from craving. And the, um, you know, as we're walking on a path, we may need some help in terms of directions, how to get where we're going. And um, we may need somebody to tell us, oh, don't go that way, go that way. So this is the context, in my understanding, of what right means. What is the right direction to take on this path to get to this aim? Freedom from this greed and aversion and delusion. And so it's not so much around... Um, it's, I would say it's very pragmatic, this nature of right. It is right in terms of what will lead to happiness and ease in our lives. And so it's kind of the, the right direction to go in that way as opposed to making a wrong turn. So I, I, I think of the right in that way and I will use probably both wise and right because wise does capture that, that notion of the right direction to get where we're going. So wise view, right view. This really begins our engagement with the path. With the, I mean, there's the way we start on a path like this is often, often we come to a path like this by meeting suffering, by meeting, some, by, by having some kind of sense of, wow, I don't know how to make things kind of, work in my life. Does anybody know? <laughs> this was certainly the case for me. And, and um, you know, somebody happened to send me a book. And in reading that book, I didn't understand a lot of it, but I was willing to engage with some of the perspectives that were offered. And the one key perspective that I took in was it's useful to be aware of your reactivity. Not with judgment, but just to know that it's happening. So that was one little tiny piece of this, in terms of this direction. It's like a little tiny piece of wise view that I took in. But just to speak about views in general, you know, so why are views important? I think I touched on this just a little bit, a little while ago, how our views shape our intentions. Our views, you know, our world views, how, how we um, 
think the world works. We have so many different worldviews. And these, these views kind of shape our, how we receive the world as well as how we step into the world, how we take action. So our views affect both how we, how we respond to the world in terms of what we take in and how we engage in the world. And these views come, now we don't, we're not born in the world, you're not born with our views so much. Mostly we, we learn them through, through culture, through our families, the ideas we grow up with. We absorb them, not by somebody sitting down and telling us, this is how things work, but just by observing and seeing how things work. And so our, our culture's kind of so our views come in kind of at a very deep level, often a nonverbal level. So sometimes we can't even articulate what our views are. Sometimes we can. But this view, uh, how, what our view is, I mean, a view is basically a concept in the mind. It's an idea in the mind. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's something that shapes how we believe, what we believe. Views and beliefs are very closely connected. And, and a, a view or a belief is, an, is, is just a process going on in our mind that in, in our culture, these views are shared. They're shared with a lot of people. And so sometimes they're harder to see when we're sharing views with a lot of people. And that becomes a way in which they can really move into the world with suffering. And so um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, again the same um, person I mentioned earlier, had this to say about our views. And this is slightly paraphrased in, in places. Our perspectives on the crucial issues of reality and value have a bearing that goes beyond mere theoretical convi- convictions. And this is, this is like s- just thinking about it. So a belief is simply, you know, it's simply a thought in the mind. How can that like have so much effect in the world? I mean, it has effect because our perspectives on the crucial issues of reality and value have a bearing that goes beyond mere theoretical convictions. They govern our attitudes, our actions, our whole orientation to existence. Whether or not they are clearly formulated in our minds, they structure our perceptions, order our values, crystallize into the ideational framework through which we interpret to ourselves the meaning of the world. These views then condition action. They lie behind our choices and goals and our efforts to turn these goals from ideals into actuality. And so this... um, the person who killed people in the synagogue on Saturday said to the police as they arrested him something like, something like, these people are destroying my culture and in order that my culture be okay, I have to destroy them. So that kind of view, that's a view that motivated the killing. So views are really important for us to look at and be aware of. Often we are not so clearly aware of them and they can be extremely dangerous there when they're not seen. If we are curious about our views and how they might affect us, then the seeing of them helps us to potentially make different choices. So for myself in seeing the anger that I mentioned that kind of motivated my whole path of practice, that was my first exploration, being mindful of that. And through the first few months of my practice, looking at that, 
at one point I so clearly saw, and it was very humbling to see this, but saw that the motivation of that anger was to make the person I was angry at miserable. You know, when I saw that, I recognized, wow, this is there. And actually even, not only to make them miserable, but to make them suffer, you know, to, to harm them in some way. This anger came with that wish. I had no idea, really, that that wish to harm somebody was in my heart. I thought I was a good person. Basically, I was a good person. But this, this motivation was deeply under that pattern of anger that had been enculturated into me. So seeing that was very humbling. Seeing that that anger was connected to a wish for someone else to be hurt. And in that moment, it was like there was such an opening of recognition. It's like there are the seeds of war in this being. No wonder the world is in such a mess. If people are not seeing this, they're acting on it. And wars can result. So this is, this is really worth seeing and looking at and, and maybe beginning to pick up a different perspective. So wise view this view that helps us navigate our way on this path. One of the things it points to is that our familiar way of finding happiness, getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want. And in, you know, in, in certain ways, you know, that, that get rid of what I don't want, get what I want, you know, feels like, well, that's just natural. But it it mushrooms into things like what, what happened over the weekend. <clears throat> Get rid of what I don't like. You know, it's not just about <clears throat> that, that, that motivation of aversion, you know, is, has the seeds to build to that level. And so really needing to look at that in our own hearts. And so... <clears throat> The Buddha pointed to that our familiar way of finding, in this right view, one of the key pieces is that our familiar way of finding happiness by getting what I want, getting rid, of what, getting rid of what I don't want, that that actually is not the way to deeper happiness. It actually just keeps us tied into struggle and suffering. And so this wise view, right view, the Buddha points to is a, is a different orientation, a different way to look at our lives. And at first we do have to kind of, um, you know, pick it up almost as a perspective. Wise view has, has an interesting kind of transformation through our practice. Initially we we kind of hear it, perhaps. We hear something of these teachings. We hear, you know, just this little tiny minuscule bit like I heard. Maybe pay attention to your anger instead of act on it. Hold it with mindfulness. Just this little tiny bit of right view. Hearing it, then I began to engage with it. So first we have to hear it. This is one of the first conditions for wise view is hearing the teachings. And then as we, um, you know, hear them, if we can take them in, the second, the second part of white view, right view or the second aspect or way in which right view transforms is, so first it's just, it's just an idea in the mind and it's just a thought. And then the second part of, uh, or the second transformation is that as we, we listen to it, we think about it, as we've taken it in, we may begin to kind of reflect on it, think about it. And so the second part is not just hearing it, but then reflecting on it. Is this something that I want to engage with? And then as we engage, the third piece of wise view is that we come to understand directly the value of that. 
And so in my own, in my own, what I just described earlier about seeing anger, you know, that seeing, reading this book, getting this, not having any idea of, of how it worked, but, you know, basically just being willing to, to, to give it a try. So the hearing of it, the reading of the book is this first aspect of right view, just taking it in, hearing some of the teachings. The willingness to engage was the second aspect. And the third aspect was when I began to understand for myself, this is useful. Began to see that through this exploration of being aware of the anger and not acting on it, but just understanding it, being with it, I began to, over the course of several weeks, began to, in only a few weeks, to experience a lessening of the suffering around the anger and learn so much around it. And that transformation has continued. So the, um, you know, at first we start by just taking in some of the teachings of wise view. There's several ways that, that wise view is framed in the Buddhist teaching. The most traditional way, the most kind of well-known way that wise view is framed is as an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. I've been talking about the Four Noble Truths and I mentioned them a little bit earlier, but if we think about what is the perspective the Four Noble Truths offer us, it is kind of a, a reframing for ourselves about how suffering happens in our experience. I think our habitual way of, of um, navigating the world is to attribute the experience that we're having of suffering to something that someone else is doing to us or some ex- situation is doing to us. We often feel that we suffer kind of almost as hapless victims of reality. You made me angry. That situation made me angry. Taking ourselves and any agency out of the picture, basically, you know, we, we, we have this sense of when that thing happens, well, then that's what happens to me. It's like, you know, we've got these automatic buttons that get pushed. And this is really where this, the, the Four Noble Truths point out that that reactivity, that internal suffering is, yes, there are conditions outside. If somebody does something harmful to us or a situation happens that um, creates you know, suffering externally, internally, then there are those situations and our response to them, there is some measure that we have of, of having different relationships to those situations. And this is really where the Buddha pointed to the inner transformation, the inner peace that's possible. Now it might be, you know, it, it can sound very um, odd to think about how might I or does it even make sense to contemplate a heart that's at peace in the face of people being murdered? How, does that even make sense? And, and I think some of our resistance to this teaching comes because it feels like if my heart's at peace with this situation, then I don't care. You know, we might have that view that having a heart that's at peace in that situation means that, that I don't care. And that's not what we want. You know, we want, we, we want to care. We want to, to be engaged. And so my understanding of what the Buddha means by a heart at peace is not a heart that is not caring. In fact, the, the, the heart of peace, maybe another word we can use, um, is equanimity. 
And that too is, is sometimes we think of as being, you know, indifferent maybe. But the, the description of equanimity, my understanding of this description of equanimity, is a heart that's not reactive to what is happening in the world. A heart that can not be contracted around what's happening in the world. And so just kind of envisioning the possibility of a heart, instead of being tight and closed around the situation, the, 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 the killing of people. Last I heard it was 11 people who died on Saturday. You know, to not have, to, the, the, the difference between what it might be to, to, to have that information that kind of reality of that having happened hitting a heart that's constricted and tight this kind of heart that's blockaded and a heart that is not constricted the 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 unconstricted heart allows that that suffering of others the situation in and resonates with that. It, it, in, in my understanding, the peaceful heart, the equanimous heart, actually feels more deeply when others are suffering, when there's injustice in the world. The peaceful heart feels it more deeply and the peaceful heart, again, what we think about someone who's peaceful, we might think about someone who doesn't do anything. You know, peace means non-action too in our minds sometimes. And in this um, understanding, peace does not mean non-action. But actually a peaceful heart, because of this like... Uh, you know, resonance with what's happening. The peaceful heart wants to engage, wants to act. And so compassion arises, which is a very different response of the heart than is anger and hatred. And so this, um, the view, you know, the view of having a peaceful heart or the aim towards having a peaceful heart is one that creates a much more responsiveness in the world. And so again, the, the, you know, this view conditions our actions in the world. And we think that a peaceful heart, you know, we might think that a peaceful heart, the actions would be no action, but that's not what happens. So these Four Noble Truths is this framing of wise view, this framing of a shift of understanding about suffering that we, we can look internally to the parts of our hearts that are constricted. I think about this as really being a key part of wise view is this interest in exploring what parts of our hearts are constricted. What is... Um, creating that suffering internally and then seeing what might be possible for transformation. And again, wise mindfulness helps us to hold that so that this transformation can happen. So the, you know, the Four Noble Truths really kind of encapsulates the view that we can that our, our minds, our systems can transform our inner reactivity. Shifting this, these habits of greed and aversion and confusion, delusion, into love and kindness, generosity, patience and wisdom, and compassion which acts in the world.
And so the, you know, right view really is about what is our relationship to suffering? And this, and this makes perfect sense. This was the question that the Buddha had leaving his home to search for some answer to this question. And so his key wisdom is around our relationship to suffering. What is our relationship to suffering? Do we think others do it to us? There are things that people do in the world that are not skillful. And, and yet to have hatred and reactivity and greed about that creates additional pain and suffering. And so the, 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 the teaching of the third noble truth is that the ending of that inner constriction, that, the, the greed, aversion, and the delusion internally creates a release from the suffering. Essentially, my sense is it creates this, this open-hearted container that responds rather than reacts to the world. And so the, this um, view, uh, there's a different way to meet the world, a different way to uh, explore our suffering, to not simply believe, you know, to not, first of all, to not believe that, that getting my own thing, you know, getting what I want, getting rid of what I don't want, you know, that, that, that view, the Buddha says, that's not going to be helpful. That is going to recondition greed and aversion over and over again. And so to, to begin to explore, the first place to begin to explore is, oh, greed is arising in the mind. Aversion is arising in the mind. Can I, can I know that? Can I be curious about that and, and feel the suffering of that? That was another kind of big aha moment for me in the first few weeks of my practice around looking at anger. Again, that seeing of, you know, how I wanted somebody else to suffer, that was a big aha moment. But then the realization that, and this was kind of obvious to me in that that particular situation because the person that I was angry with was 7,000 miles away. They, They didn't even know I was angry. And the mindfulness of the anger helped me to see and to experience This anger hurts here and now. This is suffering here and now that this anger is arising. This hurts me to be angry. And that understanding, so that's another piece of the wise view that we begin to understand that greed, aversion, and delusion arising in our minds hurts now. It is not helpful in our system the delusion that's associated with greed and aversion has kind of confused us to think, as I thought somehow, that that anger was helping me. I thought it was going to make me happy in some way. I was going to be happy when the other person was miserable. I don't know what I thought, something like that. And yet to see that the miserableness, the, the, the suffering was happening right in the arising of the anger. That was such an important recognition. And that came through the willingness to meet the anger, to open to it, to be mindful of it. So the Four Noble Truths, as right view, you know, they, they could be understood just as these statements, the Four Noble Truths, you know, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering in that is this craving or neediness, and there's a possibility to end suffering, and there's this path. And yet the Buddha, in his teachings, encourages us to understand in the moment. Another piece in terms of a wise view is this um, uh, kind of looking in the moment for, this is called wise attention, a kind of attuning to our experience from this perspective of the Four Noble Truths. So there's one teaching in which the Buddha says, one with wise attention understands this is suffering. One with wise attention understands this is the arising of suffering. 
One with wise attention understands this is the ending of suffering. And one with wise attention understands this is the way leading to the ending of suffering. And when I first heard that, I thought this this is just a, a restatement of the Four Noble Truths. I didn't quite understand what was being pointed to here. But as I read it over again, heard some teachings about it, I began to understand that what he's pointing to is looking in in the present moment. What's happening in the present moment? We normally, in our relationship to the present moment, are oriented from the perspective of what's happening to me? Who was I? What was I? What did I do in the past? And how is that going to affect me in the future? And what am I doing now? And how's that going to be a problem? We're, we're oriented around this, this exploration of the sense of, of, we're oriented from this perspective of me. And in this teaching, the Buddha is pointing us, rather than using that as our framework, I and me, maybe we could use this question of suffering as our framework for looking at our experience. And as I I thought about this, I thought any moment of experience, whatever's arising in the moment, we can, we can, this takes a little bit of kind of reflection at first, I think, but you know, it might be useful to just think about this a little bit. Any moment of experience can either be understood as, can be understood as one of these four things happening. Either there is suffering that's arising, there is suffering that's happening already. That's one thing that we might see is that, yes, I'm suffering. Yes, suffering is happening. That, that, this was my case in the seeing, okay, yep, this is anger. Wow, this hurts. That was that first noble truth. Seeing that, in my experience, created the condition for some wisdom. A different, it's in, in rather, rather than it being like, Oh, I'm angry, and what am I going to do about this? It's like, wow, this is anger arising. This is anger happening, and it's suffering. Creates a different climate in the mind, seen that way. Then, or sometimes it might be that we're seeing actually uh, kind of this transition from suffering not being here to suffering being here. We're seeing the arising of suffering. That's actually a pretty powerful witnessing in my experience is is as the mindfulness, as we're curious about suffering in our experience, sometimes sometimes what we see is just like, yep, suffering's happening. (laughs) Sometimes we kind of actually get to see not suffering turn into suffering. We get to see a shift in our minds. And we, we see in that moment how something in our minds is contributing. And so that's a, that's a really powerful witnessing. So sometimes in the moment we might see that piece, that suffering is arising right now. It's, it's just coming into being. I don't have time for an example on that one. Maybe I'll give that another time. Um, the third one, it, it, or sometimes what we might be experiencing is, is watching suffering let go. Sometimes that might be happening, seeing, seeing the mind just realizing, oh, this is not helpful, and it's being let go of. That's the third noble truth, seeing the ending of suffering. Or it might be that we're seeing we're somewhere in the middle of this whole process of cultivating patience and kindness and wisdom, cultivating wise view and wise intention and wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, cultivating the qualities, wholesome qualities of the Eightfold Path. Maybe that's what's happening. Maybe we are experiencing some suffering arising, but we're able to be mindful of it and there's some patience in there. So it feels a little different than just like, wow, this is suffering. It feels different than that. There's a sense of, oh, this is suffering. And there's a kind of a sense of holding it. And so this is seeing, this is the path. We understand that we're on the path there. 
And so this is a way in which this, these Four Noble Truths can kind of serve as a completely different framework for knowing our experience in the present moment. A really useful framework to explore around this question of suffering. It maybe sounds a little depressing, but the ultimate, the ultimate um, happiness of this path is the possibility through this reflection, through this exploration, is freedom. The, the, the heart at ease, the heart at peace. The heart that's engaged without constriction. So this is one of the definitions of, of um, wise view in the, in the teachings. There's several others um, that what I'd like to do over the next weeks that I'm here is to explore several ways into understanding right view. In my, in my um, experience in practice, in my experience as a teacher, this is such an important part of our practice. Really understanding this perspective. This perspective is what motivates the entirety of what we do. And so this kind of shift from views and perspectives that have been, you know, enculturated into us some of the views and perspectives that are enculturated into us, certainly in my own, in my own bre- upbringing, there was quite a few of be kind and be generous. And, and you know, so those things are, are beautiful. But there were also ones around, you know, just how to engage in the world and who, who's safe and who's not safe. And, you know, just whole views about so many things that I didn't really know I had until I started looking internally. And so to really, you know, be curious about this view, to be curious, so I think in wise view, we're curious not only about how can we bring this wise view perspective that the Buddha offers, but also to be curious about what views are held, what views are kind of conditioned in there. That, you know, that view that I had about, oh yeah, I'll be happy if that other person's miserable. Kind of shocking to see that. So that it's got this two-sided exploration to, to explore how do we bring this alternative perspective and can we uncover what views are already there. So more to come on Wise View. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>